Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I am so excited to bring our guest today, Faith McDonald, who is going to share a parent's perspective. And I think it's really important that when we're caring for our patients, that we keep our parents' needs in mind as well. And as our patients become young adults, they continue to need our help and our parents continue to need our support. Faith likes to write stories and to share them, encouraging, entertaining, connecting, and helping people learn. She's written for many magazines and newspapers, and one of her favorite articles, I Just Want to Be Happy, was published in today's Christian Woman magazine. It was voted by readers as their favorite that month. For many readers, she has written a column about family life for newspapers. She followed that writing gig with a blog. And she's currently an assistant teaching professor at Penn State University, where she shares communication and writing principles with students in business and technical writing classes. When she's not writing or reading, she loves to be outside and loves to bike and hike with friends. Faith hopes and prays that her family's story of a young adult son's struggle with anxiety and chronic depression will help you, especially those who are in the same place, as you navigate the challenges of loving someone through mental illness. Audience members' days aren't easy, but their loving actions are valiant and necessary. Just remember, a loved one can't face the struggle alone. Faith wishes you all courage and hope. Please join me in welcoming Faith McDonald. Hi, Faith. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Leah? Great. I appreciate you taking time to talk with me and kind of share your story because I think it's really powerful to hear from parents because we serve patients and parents hearing from you all um, sometimes I think makes the most change. So I, I appreciate your being willing to, to share. Wow. I, I appreciate the opportunity to share for sure. Well, you reached out to me about some of the struggles that you've had with um, your own child's mental health and kind of what that's been like. And it's been a long, long journey from the get-go, from the time he was a young child and, and now until he's an adult. And can you share a little bit about your story? Yeah, sure. Really, our life got really hard when our son went to college. You know, I feel like as a, a young child and a, as an adolescent, we, looking back, can say in hindsight, oh, well, that was probably anxiety. But it never really interfered with his life on an ongoing basis until he was in college. And then um, when he was in college, turns out he didn't go to class. He began to um, experiment with drugs. He got involved in using lots of alcohol. And so really the first moment that I re recall thinking, oh, something is really, really wrong is uh, he was arrested for underage drinking and trespassing. Um, 
thing is, I went and went to the police station to pick him up. And the policeman said to me, well, he said, this isn't anything we haven't done. You know, this isn't, he didn't act like it was even normal outside the realm of normal behavior. And I'm thinking, well, it is for me, you know, and at that point, I think, I don't know. I mean, it was, I think the policeman was just trying to be nice and say, you know, you made a mistake. But then we began to have more and more situations like that where, you know, it was clearly evident that our son was not not engaging in, you know, productive life. So do you think looking back, were there times in high school or even elementary or middle school where he was, you know, maybe having some of those difficulties or were there experiences that, you know, you think, gosh, maybe that was a trigger or that was the beginning and, you know, it didn't really become apparent until there was so much functional impairment later on. Right. Yeah. I can recall a time when he was about six and we were living in a county where there was a kidnapping and the news was all about, you know, and back then it was television news, the newspaper news. And the news was all about that this kid, this child had been kidnapped and killed. And, you know, they were, the police were, there was a manhunt going on. And so I know my husband and I were very nervous about it and kind of kept that news from our kids, we thought, but we're being really careful, you know, making sure we knew where they were at every minute and everything. And right around that time, Matt began to not be able to sleep through the night and he would wake up and he'd say, oh, my stomach hurts, my stomach hurts. And um, we went into the emergency room. They thought he had appendicitis. He didn't have appendicitis. They, they did a lower GI. I don't even know what it was called, but some kind of scan. And we were in the doctor's office or hospital at least three times, you know, during that two week span. And then the kidnapper was caught and my son saw the newspaper laying on the table and he said, oh, mommy, is this the man they were looking for? And I said, well, yes, but how did, you know, how did you know they were looking for someone? He's like, oh, I hear, I hear, you know, I hear it on the news and I hear you and dad talking. Well, in retrospect, I think that was his first real anxiety attack, you know, because they never found a physical reason for his stomach aches. But looking back, I think, oh, I, I'm pretty sure the well, certain those two things were tied. And even then, if we had thought, you know, of course, I second guess myself all the time. But if we had thought, okay, this child clearly, you know, needs some help dealing with anxiety. Sure. Do you think there was any impact on educational stuff? Or was, you know, was the rest of elementary and middle school and high school pretty smooth sailing? Yeah, I he says now that he's always had trouble focusing. He never ever verbalized that to us. And teachers never, you know, complained about his behavior or he did okay in school. He never I kept waiting for, you know, as a professor, I kept waiting for him to turn into this student. But my my husband is really a hands-on type work-oriented person. So I thought, well, he's more like his dad. So Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like this kind of came as a surprise when he went to college and then everything just sort of fell apart for him. Does that sound right? Yes. um, His senior year of high school, I was 
like wondering why he wasn't more academically oriented. And I'm thinking, well, if you're going to go to college, you're going to have to study a lot more than this. And I called his counselor, if you, you know, the guidance counselor. And I said, oh, I just don't, you know, I don't feel like this is working right. Again, you know, as a mom, you're thinking, I'm pretty sure this isn't how it's supposed to be or that this isn't a great direction. And the counselor just said, oh, you know, again, typical teenage behavior, he'll get it together. And, you know, he just never did. Yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, thinking about mental health and mental wellness and, you know, it it isn't necessarily a long haul. I mean, certainly depression can be very episodic, you know, with a major depressive episode. And oftentimes some of these things begin in this young adulthood, you know, that kind of later years. And, um, you know, a lot of pediatricians, we may see kids until they're 21. So they're still coming, but then there gets to be this whole thing about they turn 18 and we're still the parent. They're often not financially independent and yet getting help becomes really complicated. Was that true for you? Oh, it was incredibly true. You know, once he was in college, we couldn't really access his medical records. You know that there's all kinds of privacy laws and, um, He actually, I got him to go to the doctor because I said, you know, this doesn't seem right. He went to the doctor, he came home. And in retrospect, I guess, you know, I'm always, maybe I should have gone with them. But, you know, it's one just huge thing that you're doing, getting him to go. Well, here that doctor diagnosed him with post-traumatic stress disorder, but we didn't find that out for two years. And so you're like, well, you know, we couldn't have, we didn't help him get help. I said, what did the doctor say? He didn't obviously communicate to me what the doctor had said. And then he was left not getting any of the help that could have been beneficial. Right. It's a, it's a big disconnect. And, you know, sometimes on the physician end, you know, like you said, I, if a patient is 18 years or older, I have to have their permission to, share with a parent, unless they're suicidal, at which point I think HIPAA laws are a little bit more lenient about being able to say, I I need to share this. I mean, I would certainly talk to a patient, but, you know, when that becomes a life or death situation, but, you know, barring it being that severe, there are a lot of these sort of barriers to, to sharing information. I have told parents you can call me and tell me what your concerns are. I may not be able to share back, but I can at least hear what your concerns are and, you know, reach out to your your child. Now, that may not always go well, <laughs> you know, but it, it's it's dicey for sure. And the other thing that is hard is that a lot of people with depression or severe anxiety or other mental health, particularly things like psychosis, they're not really in a great place to seek the help they may need. I mean, it's part of a function of the disorder that I don't have motivation or I'm afraid to do that or I'm delusional and I don't think there's something wrong with me. It's the, you know, the voices in my head are the ones I need to pay attention to. And so I I hear about this struggle for parents you know, when you think that it's interesting when you're talking about all these physical symptoms and in your six-year-old, I think this happens a lot. 
Um, we see, particularly in that elementary school age, we see lots of kids with headaches and stomach aches. And it's really difficult for us because on the one hand, there's, you know, I don't want to miss a brain tumor. You know, I mean, that's a headache. Boy, that's that's in everybody's head. It's in the parent's head. It's in my head. And pardon the pun, you know, but how much workup do you do? I mean, if you have a normal neurologic exam, do they need an MRI? And the problem with that is then you do an MRI and it picks up all kinds of stuff that may be totally irrelevant. And now you got to chase that. And so there are these huge, sometimes invasive workups that are unnecessary because the diagnosis is a mental health diagnosis. And I think we get caught in this trap a lot. And I think that we're kind of listening to the parents' worries and concerns. And and then that sort of feeds our own worries and concerns, like, oh, maybe maybe it is that. So it's hard to have those conversations. I think more and more we're beginning to think about, you know, school avoidance. Is it an anxiety, stomach aches, headaches? I mean, you perfectly outline a triggering event for your son. And, and it makes total sense. And I think about now with, you know, some of these videos like the George Floyd uh, murder over and over and over and over again and what that was like for, you know, Black youth to see that over and over again. So I, I think that there are those things that we have to put that together. And I hope by hearing voices like yours that we think about that. Yeah, well, even realize when you said that, that we have to realize too, our kids are paying attention in ways we don't maybe necessarily realize. And I guess maybe learning to talk to them more. I don't. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And there's so many platforms. I mean, of course, with social media, you know, kids are textings, you know, they're sending TikToks and, you know, Instagram. I don't think many kids use Facebook, but. And there aren't many newspapers anymore, but, you know, TVs are on and, and, you know, those newsreels play over and over and over. And I I think you're right. Kids hear that. They hear us talking and they don't always have the bandwidth to understand what that means. They just hear the fear, our fear, the public fear. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then they internalize it and, and we're, we just don't know the cues because it's confusing when you think back on some of your experiences, how how do you think doctors can best serve parents and and their children and their young adults? I mean, do you see some role for us that we could do a better job? Well, I'd like to, I feel like if we could get all the professionals who are, you know, working with my son even now talking, you know, maybe that would help maybe, and I know some medical people have it now, like you can email them, but once you you're in that office, you know, and you ask your questions and then they give an answer and you get home and you think, well, wait a minute, I have more questions. I have more questions about that answer, or I have more, you know, where do I go now? What's the next step? Or I'm still living with this day after day after day, but I don't feel connected to the medical people or the mental health professionals who, you know, I think know more than me about it. Right. Well, and and again, you also, particularly for where you are now, have a young adult. And so where where does the, the line go between the parent and the adult seeking their own care? 
when they're not always in the best position to do so. And I think it's hard because were this a medical condition, some of it would be very different. You know, I think about kids that have medical complexities like diabetes. You know, oftentimes we're working with the whole team fairly readily. And I see certainly from a pediatrician's perspective, my role is often the um, conductor. I may okay. not have all the advice, you know, especially, a, for example, a child who has cancer. You know, I'm certainly not running the chemo by any means, but I know the oncologist. And if they're concerned about anxiety or something, they're talking to me. And so we have this communication. I don't know that we always bring the parent into it as much, although I think it's better. And we do have now a lot of practices have they call care nurse care managers that help coordinate. And some of us are lucky enough to have social work. So I think we're beginning to move in that direction. But And then the other piece that gets left out and is even more of a wall is the mental health professional because their standards of um, privacy and rightly so are much more stringent than the medical ones. And so trying to communicate, even for me to call a, a therapist, you know, unless they have a release, I mean, it's, it's complicated. And for a parent of an adult, that's even harder. Yeah. I called my son's counselor, I would say probably about a year ago, because I was just like, ah, and I, he said, well, I can't tell you whether or not Matt's a patient. And I said, well, this is going to be a waste of your time if he's not. (laughs) However, here's what I think. I mean, I knew he was a patient, you know, and I just was trying to find another support system for my kid, but I don't feel like it's really adequate, you know, even as involved as my husband and I are trying to help him, it still feels like we haven't done enough or there must be something else that could be done. Right, right. Well, and the treatments are are difficult. There's so much trial and error. There's so much weight. You know, seeking a psychiatrist can be tricky. Psychiatrist, sometimes our collaboration with the psychiatrist, it, it may not be as optimal as it could be. Again, I think we're all trying to do that. But, you know, there there are a lot of barriers And I do think we're doing a better job of screening. Um, You know, I mean, we screen routinely now in primary care for depression and anxiety and and suicidality because, of course, you know, in, in in this age group, you know, especially that, you know, 15 to 24, you know, suicide's the second leading cause of death in that age group. And, you know... I think parents, we should let you know that we are asking those questions, maybe not as often as we should be, but did that ever come up for you as far as worrying about suicide with your son? Oh, yes. We had a friend whose uh, son committed suicide, and so that made me very alert because probably up until that point, and again, it sounds dumb, but I thought like suicide didn't come into families like ours. You know, like, well, that's somebody else's problem. We don't, that's certainly not a problem for us. But when this young man committed suicide, I thought, oh, and even his mother said to me at one point, she said that, you know, be alert because there were more indications that my son struggled than she ever had indications. Sure. Um, So, 
Yeah, and and it's hard to use those words. I mean, it's hard as a professional to say to someone, "Are you having thoughts of killing yourself?" I mean, that's a hard. It it feels so intrusive, yeah. and and people sometimes get mad. Like, why would you think that? And you know, my thought about that is, I'd rather that you be mad at me than you be dead. So I'm going to ask because it's important. And I think you're so right. You know, suicide. It, you know, it touches every everyone. It doesn't matter your your race, your ethnicity. I mean, there are variations sometimes in groups, especially depending on other psychosocial factors and, you know, poverty and things like that. But, you know, there are high profile people that we think are doing fabulously well and, and they die. So I, I think one of the things to know about suicide is that mental health disorders and substance use are risk factors. So certainly if that's something that your child or spouse or friend is experiencing, it, I think it's important to ask. And sometimes it can be like the phrasing, I don't know about you, but I know sometimes people in your situation have thoughts of suicide. Have you ever had thoughts like that? You know, but it's still hard. Yeah. It's, the other thing you didn't mention is paranoia. I think that our son began to get very paranoid. Like mm. you and dad want to hurt me. And actually, my husband was working with a man who was expressing, you know, paranoia, like he just different things. He wouldn't be in the lunch room. If people were in the lunchroom without him, then he would get really upset. And I said to my husband, well, it sounds like, you know, he's similar to Matt before Matt became suicidal. And so my husband took this man aside and said, you know, you remind me of things or your, your act. I don't know how he phrased it, but are you, you know, have you had thoughts of suicide? And like you said, the, the man got very angry and said, why would you ask me that? You know, I can't believe you asked me that. And then 24 year, hours later, he called Steve and he said, actually what you said today or yesterday, I am having those thoughts. What do you think I should do? And, you know, until you live through it, or if you have the medical expertise, you don't realize like, oh, that these behaviors could really lead to this really sad situation. That is such a powerful story and and how, you know, great. I mean, your husband may have saved his life, you know, this this person. Um, there are some great trainings out there for really the lay public. Um, there's one called Safe Talk. And there's another called QPR, which is question, persuade, and refer. And it really is just helping anyone know, if I'm worried about somebody, how do I ask? And then what do I do? Because it's not, you know, as a lay person, it's not your responsibility to be the interventionist in terms of doing treatment, but to get them to the right place and to get them the right information. I think it's going to be next year, there's going to be a, a 911 type of number for um, suicide prevention. There is the, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and it's 1-800-273-TALK. And there's also a crisis text line, which I think is really great for people to know. It's um, 741-741. And you just text that, and you can type in home or help, and you have a professional on the line. So there are those oh, wow. kinds of things. Yeah, so there are those kinds of things that we can share with our patients, with our parents. I mean, a parent could call and say, hey, I don't know what to do and kind of have some advice. 
um, about, you know, what, what do I, how do I keep this person safe that I love? Yeah. And that, that's a hard conversation. And for listeners, um, the podcast back in May with Ann Moss Rogers, who lost her son to suicide, talks a lot about how important it is for professionals, especially because that's who uh, obviously a lot of the audience is, is to ask these questions and be okay. She says, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm. And uh, I, I, that was a, a really powerful phrase. There was something else that you told me that after a long time of trying to get help, that what really made a difference for you was someone said, he can get better. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Well, for years, you know, we watched our son deteriorate until finally, you know, he was suicidal and he was in the behavioral health unit of our hospital. And he was so not himself that he was bang, he would bang his head against the wall, hoping that that would kill himself, Mm. you know, and then they gave him a drug. I think it's, I forget the name of the drug, so I'm not going to say it, but they gave him something that gave him like a tick and Mm -hmm. caused him to drool. And so we went in and we're thinking, oh my goodness, this is, we brought him here to get better. And now he's worse. So we're in a very, very dark place. And I was in my mind trying to figure out, well, how do I live with my beautiful, beautiful son, you know, like this? I thought it was going to last forever. And one of the nurses said to me, oh, he's going to get better. I've seen people get better from worse than this. And that just brought me hope, you know, and I said, well, how come you're the only one who's told me that? She said, well, you know, I I don't know why she was the only one really, but it was just, it gave me hope like, oh, it's not always going to be like this. Yeah. And I I think again, Ann Moss Rogers talked about, it's really important to let people know who are suicidal or who are having, you know, serious depression is we can, you know, there is hope. There are things that we can do to help you feel better. And it's complicated and it's a long haul. And I I know it's not simple, but I think to offer that, like this isn't the end of the road, because I think for a lot of people who die by suicide, it's not that they want to be dead. They just don't want to feel so bad. Yeah, yeah. And they're exhausted. But yes, Matt even says, you know, Recently, he's like, well, I just hurt so much. And you think, oh, I used something that you said to me, like, well, why don't you try and do the next thing? And then maybe you'll feel a little better. How did that go? Mm. (laughs) I wish. Well, there are different kinds of, of treatments in terms of therapy. And one of them is called activation therapy. And um, some of the therapists have talked about it on the podcast about, you know, this idea of depression in particular being this big kind of spiral down and you're at the bottom and you have no energy and you want to stay in bed. And the thing that kind of lifts you back up is the thing that you don't want to do. So can you, can you try and do it? Can you make that effort, but kind of committing to, um, so I've, I've done it with patients sometimes to say, can you go for a walk? And they're, well, maybe. And I'm like, well, what time can you go? What day? And then I sometimes will try and hold them accountable. And it may be a little bit different than a parent saying it, but, you know, will you send me a message like in the electronic record, you know, in the portals 
and let me know that you've done that. And and it, I've had people do it. So, you know, sometimes it's those little baby steps up. But, you know, and I I think finding a really good therapist that somebody can connect with and stay with you is important and and medications have a role, but it's it's a these are difficult. These are difficult and chronic conditions. You know, it's not like a it's not like a quick fix. Right. And it's so hard. I think we've talked about this a little bit. Matt's psychiatrist right now is trying to dial back on some of the meds that she thinks might be sedating. So maybe just his body coming off some of that is, you know, hurting him or why he feels so bad. But he doesn't seem to like have the language to say, oh, this is this is exactly what hurts or so for me, trying to have a conversation is, you know, you're like, well, and I think one of the things when we're talking with parents and families is I can give you some information thinking that it's helpful, but it you're in this for like hours and hours and days and weeks. And so, you know, to say, you know, in three or four weeks, this is going to be better, which is great, but three or four weeks is a long time, right? When you're doing this day in, day out. And so what are those like baby steps and what are those supports? And, you know, again, uh, you hope that a, a, a therapist, the other thing that there are now are a lot of apps where folks can kind of track their mood. And um, there's one called Helio, it's H-E-A-L-I-O. And, you know, things like meditation and, and those things have been shown to alter mood, yoga, body movement. I think exercise is underrated. I mean, I think we all know that exercise is good for you, but there's a lot of research about exercise helping with treat depression. And so, you know, one of my colleagues, friends over at the University of Michigan has done a lot of research on depression and activity, you know, getting on a treadmill, going for a walk, nature therapy. So there are all those sorts of things. But again, when you have no motivation, it's hard to even do that, you know. And and it sort of sounded like one of the other things that would be helpful from a, a primary care person is to help create a plan. And hopefully with the patient, of course, because they're at the center of all this is you know, what does your son want? You know, what, what does he want? How can we best help? And then can we get permission to have you involved without the parent taking over, you know, because there is, there is that, I mean, especially when you have a, you know, a young adult who's in their twenties or thirties, I mean, you want folks to have autonomy, Yeah. yeah. but, but sometimes they, you know, they're in a hard place. So I know this is tough stuff. So I guess the other piece of it as a parent, I mean, you have maybe other children, you have a spouse and yourself. How do you deal with that? Because this puts strain on everybody, right? Yeah, it sure does. My husband and I even just this morning had this conversation where he said, well, we're going to do this, whatever. I forget exactly what it was for man. I'm like, well, we can't just move in, you know, and take over his life. He's the one who has to make these choices. So for me, you know, being learning to communicate in difficult situations, learning that there is going to be conflict, because I was the kind of person who would just kind of be silent and not voice, you know, things if I thought they would bring conflict. But I've certainly over the years become more able to engage 
in conversations that are hard. And um, you know, knowing that this does create a challenge for our whole family is, it's, I think for me, I go back to, we talked about baby steps for the depressed person, but for me, it's almost baby steps of hope, you know, like, okay, I have hope that today he's going to get up and he's going to go to work. And I'm not going to think about, you know, I can get myself really kind of depressed if I think, oh, he doesn't have any retirement. What's going to happen? Right, right. You know, and Steve and I aren't here anymore. And who's going to take care of him? And yeah, you have uh, to kind of dial it back to where you are. Yeah. I, you often hear the phrase, meet people where they are, you know. Yeah. And um, there's also a great line from a movie with Tom Hanks. And I want to say it's a bridge too far. Anyway, it's a spy movie and there's a man who's in trouble and Tom Hanks says to him, aren't you worried? And he says, would it help? (laughs) And I love that. I love that. I think one of the other things, and again, you're kind of talking about the struggle with independence and I know it becomes an issue with substance use disorders about at some point, you know, when do you let go and just say, I, I've done all I can. And and that's a hard place to be because, you know, letting your child flounder feels, um, you know, and you don't want to lose them. I mean, that's the bottom line, right? So, you know, another thing that I came across that I wish I'd seen earlier was called Walking on Eggshells, Parenting Your Adult Child. And, you know, the it, it's a nice little book. But the biggest thing, her three words of advice were, don't give advice, don't give advice, don't give advice. And when I've, you know, I have adult children now, and when I have given advice, it didn't go so great. <laughs> you know, it was, and sometimes I have to ask permission, or, you know, if my kids are talking about something, because, you know, as a parent, you want to fix stuff. Right. Yeah. And it, I sometimes have to stop and say, do you, are you just venting or are you wanting advice? Or I said, of course, of course, I want to fix this for you. But, you know, I think the power in somebody being able to do it themselves is, is you know, hugely important. But it, it becomes difficult for sure. And but anyway, I loved her advice to not give advice. The other person, the other resource that I love is, you know, stuff by Brene Brown. You know, she writes The Gifts of Imperfection and Daring Greatly, Braving the Wilderness. But, you know, she talks a lot about when you're having these difficult conversations, the language to use, the story I'm telling myself is that blah, 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 whatever it is, because how we interpret the other person may not be what is actually going on, but we have our own stories. You know, the story I'm telling myself is that you're not going to have a retirement and, you know, you're going to be floundering when we're gone, you know, that, that doesn't put the onus on the other person to fix it for you, but you're sharing, this is why I'm responding. And, and I, I've loved that. I, I think that's been really helpful. And if you ever listen to her podcasts or her books on um, audio, they're great because she does them herself. And I just have found them to be tremendously insightful. So Well, I think the other thing I wanted to touch on is the book that you wrote on the loving end of crazy. Talk about your book and what you're hoping and when is it coming out? Oh, thank you. My book is, yeah, as you mentioned, the on the loving end of crazy and the subtitle is finding hope and help to face your loved ones, crippling anxiety and depression. And I wrote the book because for me, this journey was really lonely. You know, in the book, I talk about how 
at first I didn't share with anyone. I just felt so devastated by our son's, you know, behavior and condition. And over the years, I kind of found like a number of things that were helpful, you know, and now I don't feel so lonely in this um, situation, but my heart is just for other moms like me who, you know, you're, you're looking at, you think, why is this, you know, why is my son floundering when everybody, <clears throat> or it seems like everybody else's children are, you know, off and have launched successfully. So that was my motive for writing the book. And it tells our family story and really concentrates or focuses on how I grew as a result of this story. And I know it's been helpful to it. It came out last February and people have read it. You can find it on Amazon, but people do. It's a hopeful story. It's, you know, just shares the the things that I learned that would, that help me every day. You know, we're not through this yet. We still face challenges every day, but I know that we do it better or do it. I don't know if that's the right word better because you can only do when you're in a situation in life, you can only use the tools you have, right? But there, I developed some tools that help us face this situation with more hope. Ned Hallowell, who's a psychiatrist, said, never worry alone. I yeah. thought that was, those were great words, you know, that it's, it's hard. And I think the other thing that you touch on is the shame, you know, the shame that, gosh, you know, did I do something wrong? You know, why are, why is my child not? flourishing or successful, whatever success means, right? And and of course, you, you're not alone. I mean, there are a lot of folks that struggle. I mean, most people have struggled at some point in their lives, but we, you know, it's not like you sit around and go, hey, to let me tell you my worst day. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I was in church on Sunday and the pastor said, you know, that we have to, as people functioning as a community of faith, be comfortable with sharing our brokenness. Mm. Well, that's a great, you know, ideal, but really, how do you do that? You know, nobody like wants you. I began to feel like, oh, anybody says, how are you? I'm like, oh, I'm miserable. (laughs) You know, my, my kid is in bed in a dark room and he won't come out. Yeah. Well, I think that question about when we ask people kind of, how are you? you know, are we prepared? And and should we be asking also, you know, our friends and family, how are you really? And I think that that's something that primary care physicians and clinicians can do, you know, when we're asking, how are you? And sometimes, you know, we don't want to hear the, I'm not doing well at all, because that's hard. <laughs> but I mean, but that's what our job is. And, you know, again, you know, worst case scenario, I mean, if somebody's thinking about suicide, all my fabulous advice about how to manage your diabetes is really moot. And so asking, how are you really, you know, like that example you gave with your husband, asking that person, you know, have you had those thoughts? Where are you struggling? But it's hard because these are chronic conditions for many people. And and how do you find those snippets of hope and so I think it's really brave of you to share all this. And how has that been for your son, sharing your story? Oh, he was on board. I wouldn't, you know, I wrote it, but I wouldn't have shared it without his permission. And even the title, I said, well, I'm going to call it on the loving end of crazy. And he said, oh, don't do that. 
And I said, well, why? And he said, well, it makes it sound like I was crazy. And I'm like, well, (laughs) I said, I certainly wouldn't use that title if that made him feel uncomfortable. And after a couple of weeks, he came back and he said, mom, you know, I've really thought about it. And I want to share our story so that other people can find hope. He knows, you know, even though today is difficult because he still feels the pain of depression, it's not the the bewildering, perplexing time before when we didn't know why he was acting the way he was. And he was also uh, using alcohol and drugs to, I don't know, self-medicate or if you know, what that was. He's come out of that. He's not in that place now. And um, there were times, I mean, when he was in severe depression, he wouldn't even say two words in a day. And that is not an exaggeration. You know, now we can communicate about it. And I think he, he still suffers, but having even a diagnosis that I even sometimes wonder if it's totally accurate, I think that still helps. Sure. Well, sometimes being able to name something. I was also thinking your title on the loving end of crazy. It's not necessarily the patient who may be, quote, crazy, but the parent who may feel crazy, too. I mean, like, this is, I just can't wrap my head around it kind of feeling. And I I know, too, just with some of my own kids' struggles, I mean, sometimes you become so in you're just so in it, you can almost not think about anything else. And another phrase that came out of that walking on eggshells was you're only as happy as your most unhappy child. And so you kind of get sunk into that. And, you know, you have other children and, and, you know, they're feeling like, hello, I'm here, (laughs) you know, and spouses who are, you know, and I think that happens with chronic illness too. I mean, there's so much investment in the person who is not well that we forget about the other people and, and ourselves, you know, this is. Yeah. And that I've heard that saying before about you're only as happy as your most unhappy child. And I just, for me, one of my biggest life challenges is I'm going to be happy. Do you know? And, and it's, you feel sad that you're happy when he's not, but I'm thinking I have what, 20 years left to live 20, you know, I mean, we, none of us know how much we have left, but I'm thought I can't spend my years miserable because he is. Well, and that probably doesn't help him. Right. I mean, we're, we're less likely to respond to others pain if we're not in a great place either. So I don't think it's selfish to take care of ourselves, you know, yeah. and I, I think you know, as women in particular, we're so used to being caregivers and sort of giving it all, you know, until you're kind of empty, you know, there's just not a lot of energy left and, you know, trying to step away and, and kind of find that own, you know, like there's only so much I can do. Right. And reconciling that it's, I honestly believe it's one of the challenges of my life, you know, to, you, you do feel sad but on the other hand you can be grateful and there is purpose in suffering too you know I I look at it that way too it's not I mean that sounds mean right (laughs) There's, there's purpose in your suffering but you know for me it's strengthened my faith it's enlarged my compassion for people enlarged my compassion for my students in ways that I never would have been compassionate if we hadn't lived through the challenges that we've lived through. Well, and I think about, you know, I mean, I went through a pretty rough patch of postpartum anxiety. 
It was pretty crippling for me. It gave me a whole new appreciation when I see moms to be able to say, I, I know what you're talking about. I know what this is like. And I wonder too, for your son, I mean, he must have compassion for other folks that are, and to really know, like, I, I know what that feeling is like. I know, I don't know exactly what your experience is, but I've been in my own dark place too. And it sounds like, you know, certainly with your book, you're kind of trying to shine a light. I love the, the, you know, you're not alone. And, and that's really, it's all about people and connections. And I think that's been one of the things that's been so hard with COVID is yes. how we meet people and connect. I mean, I'm so grateful that I've been able to like see my friends now that are vaccinated and be able to hug them and hug my children. I just, went on a vacation to see my daughter who I hadn't seen you know, for nine months. And just to hug the people you love, you know, is, is hard. So I'm sure that COVID did not add, you know, that this isolation thing is poof and fear, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hoping with summertime and vaccines and, you know, that there's hope on that end and, you know, again, that there's hope and not giving up you know, for your son not to give up and to know that, you know, it's just one step forward that life has purpose and meaning and, and that compassion for other people may be the biggest gift. Yeah. Well, he does peer to peer training now. I don't know if you've heard of that, but Mm -hmm. he went through the training for that. And in the graduation, the speaker said to the, there were about 12 or 18 people who are graduating, he said, your dark days are your credentials. And that phrase really stuck with me. So really want those credentials, but what did he serve as a peer? He is now. Yeah. A few, a few hours every week. And, and that's so helpful for him because as he, you know, as a peer to people who are going through hard times, it helps work through some of his yeah, I know one thing that's been really successful in some emergency rooms um, with people coming in with like narcotic overdoses and addictions is they'll have someone who's in recovery who actually goes and says, hey, I've been where you are and let, you know, let me tell you about what's out there. And just because, you know, to connect with somebody who's walked that walk too. So that's great that he's doing that. I, I think sometimes stepping outside of ourselves and looking how we can help other people sometimes lifts us too. Yeah. That's that's another intervention. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and your book. And, you know, it sounds like you're trying to lift other parents to know that they're not alone and you do what you can do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for this opportunity. And I will put links to um, where people can find your book. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And I hope that your son feels better and um, that, you know, can find lighter days ahead. Thank you. And thank you for all that you're doing to draw people's attention to this really important topic. Well, thank you. Before we get started on the takeaways, I want to just share my gratitude to Faith for sharing this story because it takes a lot of courage to share those things that sometimes are secrets that hide in the shadows. And bringing them to light may really help all of us do a better job. So thank you, Faith. So here are the takeaways. Number one, parenting is hard no matter the age of your child, teen, young adult, or adult. Number two, 
I think we are becoming more and more aware of the mind-body connect and anxiety presenting oftentimes as stomach aches and headaches. And I think all of us know those kids. We need to keep this in the differential as we think about the workup. You know, we may be barking up the wrong tree if we think that chest pain is a cardiac event, which in kids is most likely not. Number three, parents don't always think that their child could be thinking about suicide. For patients who we are treating for mental health, we need to normalize the asking and normalize it for our parents too. So we just let them know that, hey, this is just routine. Phrasing like, I don't know about you, but some kids with similar struggles, and you can insert there, whether it's a breakup, school failure, divorce, bullying, etc. Sometimes those kids think about suicide or killing themselves. Have you ever had those thoughts? That might be a good way to address that with kids. Number four, training such as Safe Talk and QPR are helpful to learn how to ask and support. These are designed for the lay public, but they could be a staff training for your office, and a lot of community mental health organizations offer these trainings. You can also check back to episodes 37 and 38 for some really specific information about screening for suicide risk. Number five, parents need us to lay out a plan to talk to partners and always to offer hope. And when I say partners, I mean like our mental health partners and school partners, because the more that we're all on the same page, the better we do for our patients. Number six, routine screening using, for example, the PHQ, the GAD-7 can help monitor progress. And this can be helpful for our families to really understand why we use them. And therapists often can benefit from using these too. And if you're sharing that as what I call a mental health vital sign, that can really help you know, guide treatment. Number seven, for parents of adult children, the barriers are even higher. And this is a tricky dance between supporting your child, but nurturing independence. And I think for the, you know, healthcare providers out there, you know, it's hard because we can't disclose information if the patient is 18 or over. Now, if it is a patient at risk of suicide and they won't seek help on their own, you can let a parent or another adult know about the risk, but you need to be very clear that this is something you need to do. But, you know, if it's saving a life, you can disclose that information. Number eight, caregivers need to take care of themselves to know that they are doing the best they can and to take time to find joy. And I think that's really good advice for us as well. And number nine, feeling alone is crippling. Faith says, sharing brokenness is healing. Please check out On the Loving End of Crazy, her book that will be coming out in the summer, and look at the other show links and see if you can find some information that might be helpful. One of my favorites is Walking on Eggshells, Parenting Your Adult Child. I found that to be really helpful, and I'm so excited to see Faith's new book. So again, thank you for listening, and I hope that thinking about what it is like to have a child with a mental health concern is like for parents because it's an everyday worry. Thank you for all you do. Have a great day and take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. 
This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.